Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Finding Color in the Darkness podcast. I'm your host, Margie, along with my co-host, Ben. And today, our guest is Anna Guzman. Anna Guzman, welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Anna was born in one of six in Peru in 1972, and she came to the U.S. at the age of 10 in 1982. Anna, can you tell us what was happening in Peru at the time, and why did your family make the decision to emigrate from Peru to the United States? Um, what was happening to the world? We were under the Cold War, and the U.S. was fighting, as we know, with the Soviet Union. Um, my family, I, my family has been in the same town for hundreds of years. We were very well known in the community, and uh, the Soviet Union started funneling money for in people in Peru that felt that were marginalized, that wanted to have more of a piece of a pie, if you will, more equality, more rights. And so it, it, it started a civil war. And uh, it got, as we know how terrorism is, it became bombings, kidnappings, murders, and it came to Lima. And we really had no choice. I remember waking up in the middle of the night and saying, come on, come on, let's go. We're going to go say goodbye to your cousins. And then I was put in a plane and I was brought to America. So you left Peru, not for financial security, but for security because your family was not safe. Can you tell us what was your father doing for work when you were living in Peru and what did he end up doing when he moved to Peru and your mom as well? Sure. So my grandfather before he died, he, we had a building business and it was a family business. The business was not doing well as a result of terrorism. And then my dad opened a restaurant. And again, because of terrorism and all the the uh, civil unrest that was coming to Lima, we had to leave. Uh, my dad was very well known in our community. We were very well known. Uh, we will say we were uh, Peru is a hierarchy society, if you will. Even if you do not lose, lose all your money, your name, your last name can get you to places and get you careers. So that's how we were. We were very well known. And we moved to Florida. And my mom and my dad uh, cleaned houses, toilets um, in their late 50s. Um, so it was very humbling and also very traumatic for all of us to see what to go from a seven-bedroom house to a to go to F Florida and live in this two-bedroom apartment, it was uh, very traumatic for all of us. So, what impact did this have upon your father's um, sanity, your mother's sanity, the the family connection? How did your family um, respond collectively to this traumatic transition and departure from your native land and? and having to learn English, and what was that like? Well, I think the silent code of all immigrants. We don't talk about it. We just bow down and we just, uh, you know, we, children in Peru, we're taught not to always, not to ask, just do what your parents say. And my dad and my mom, I, I can tell, number one, my mom being the socialite that she was, now being somebody's mate, really uh, affected her. She already has some uh, emotional issues. And my dad became extremely withdrawn. 
And all of us just try to survive and fit in schools and the bullying and everything that happens when you're a child and you know you don't dress the part or you don't speak the language. Um, but children are resilient. We were able to you know, be able to acclimate and make friends. And every summer we would go to Peru until one summer when I was uh, excited to go. So my whole family excited to come back to the States um, to start high school. And that's where the nightmare of my childhood, if you will, was exacerbated because my visa was uh, expired. So we ended up staying in Peru for two years. And during those two years, I had very limited contact with my mother and my father. And my older sister, she's about 12 years older than me, became, was, you know, delegated to become our parent. So we were in Peru. Uh, We started going to school. We had to make friends, learn Spanish, ironically, because we forgot it. We're children and also had to deal with no parents and a sister that I can tell she was uh, very um, irritable and resented, but had no choice. Um, Also, Peru was in such a a political turmoil and very, very, very dangerous to live there. So our life consisted of going to school and coming home to this big compound of a house that we had. Um, It was almost like being in jail, and that's the life of immigrants. Uh, And that's the life that you live when you live in a country that is um, during the Civil War that we were going through. You mentioned earlier when we were talking about this prior to this interview that your sister understandably became irritable and angry because she was put in this position as mother, a position that she did not sign up for and did not anticipate. And you were also put in the position of having to be essentially raising yourselves with with as best help as she could give you. But you talked about what today's youth don't think about because they have the internet and they have telephones, cell phones. So how did that further? um, This is 1985, correct? Correct. And you are right. Um, It was extremely the worst years of my life. I miss my mom. I miss my mom every day. I cried. I cried for her. And... uh, I'm sorry, I'm getting shaky. Um, The post office, she would send us a mail, a letter, and it would get there a month later. And we had to, we didn't have a phone in our house because we left and we didn't, Peru was, you know, so we had to finally get a phone and the conversations had to be like, you know, because a minute was like $100. Um, But I miss my mom so much. I just miss, I miss my dad. I miss my family. I miss my old two older sisters. Um, I missed my friends and, you know, I was going to do um, soccer in high school. So it was a lot of depression and sadness. Um, And I'm sure that it was also with my siblings, but we didn't talk about it because um, in Peru, mental health is considered, excuse my language, uh, weak. And if you have any inkling of any mental issues, you are considered crazy. 
And, and the friends that you had in the U.S., you had also said you didn't get a chance to say goodbye to them, so you had both the alienation of your family and their difficulties, as we talked earlier about your mom becoming attached and your father feeling a sense of humiliation of becoming somebody who had a, an important position and then was reduced to cleaning toilets and not having that. So that family dynamic, that strength isn't there for them. And as a child, you, you can't absorb all that without someone to talk to. Without Exactly. And you had no one to talk to, no therapy. No, no, no. Therapy was definitely something that was not... It was never discussed, nor even an option. And, you know, my dad was a businessman, a prestigious man, and to see him lower and, and doing what all we do, work hard and support, that's all he wanted to do, uh, bow down and do what he needed to do to in America. And then my mom going from never have a job to have to go and be a maid and take care of a rich, wealth, wealth, wealthy people in Palm Beach. And then my sister, the one that I think her uh, depression or her frustrations turned into a, made her very angry, very volatile because she had to quit college and all of her dreams in her early 20s to raise her youngest, younger siblings who were teenagers and were also uh, not speaking in Spanish and was also, you know, I'm sure we were giving her a hard time. Uh, but I did sunk into a deep, deep depression. Then we were able to return to America. And when we returned, I think that separation made us all detach, if you will. You know, we just, everybody was living in a house, but we're all on our own. And the dynamics of the family unit changed. Uh, my sister became more of a parent because she was a parent for two years. So she uh, crossed boundaries with my parents. Um, and my mom and my dad were just cohabitating, if you will. I can tell there was no more love. So we were not really a family. We were all doing our own thing. Um, my older, older sister, um, decided uh, she was already she graduated from high school she did not want to go to college she just wanted to work because she wanted to move out I graduated from high school and I moved to Miami because I wanted to experience college life I wanted to experience American life and um, my younger brother had a lot of um, juvenile issues at school and uh, but you know it, it happened and but he's He's successful now, um, and so so uh, we are all doing well, but we all have those scars. And I was able, moving forward, to go to college, get married, traveled, and see the world. And be, I embraced and I became a true American. I had my baby, and because I felt that I never had a mother, I was not only being a mother, but I will, it gave me a chance to sort of be my own mother. And those were the best years of my life. Having my baby um, gave me a second chance at life. But I also wanted to know why I was the way I was and why my family had all those, uh, we, well, we, had, we were so dysfunctional and that's why I became a social worker and a public servant and I worked for over 20 years um, 
in Florida, Connecticut, and Texas helping many populations from homelessness, drug addictions, to achieving a better life. I would tutor uh, immigrants that needed to learn English in order to get their citizenship. Um, and so I was giving a voice to people like myself that at one time didn't know the language. It is very difficult and very scary not to be, to be in a country that you don't understand people. And I saw my dad, how uh, gregarious and outspoken and chatty like myself he was. And then I saw him basically being mute. He had a hard time coming and obviously working 12 hour shifts. Um, didn't give him the opportunity to go to school and learn the language. And as time went on, I would say now my dad passed away, but I would say that he did battle also depression and he also lost his voice. He couldn't speak, he couldn't articulate English. He just shut down. Um, and I felt that way in 2016 when my career ended. After 20 years, I felt back shut down and depressed. I was dehumanized when I think that number one, people that are like ourselves, public servants should be uh, praised and we should actually be encouraged to continue doing the work. Um, so going to 2016, why would I mention it? Because we elected a president that opened some, uh, opened some wounds that were already healed for me. Um, you know, it, it, I, I was, I have always been very actively involved in politics and because I believe it's my civic duty as an American, but I never felt insulted. And I never, in, in the past, since 16, I have been asked many times, how did you get here? Are you a citizen? And if you don't like it, go back to your country. And those are things that I would just be ignore because that's just ignorant people saying it. But I never in my life thought that my president would tweet and say things like that. Um, and I did that and I loved it. So then your world came crashing down in July of 2019. Yes. Tell me, and I'm very sorry to lead you back to this day, but this is the, the finding color in the darkness. We have to go to the darkness and tell me, Anna, this is particularly hard. Sure. To, um, what happened and what was going on? So I've been in and out of darkness my whole life, as you, as you can tell. Um, but 2019, when it should have been a day where we, him and I were celebrating in this lavish resort in San Antonio. I saved uh, enough money, we rented two rooms, and we were going to have a uh, birthday party for both of us. And so he was allowed to bring two friends. Yes, he, he had his own room, I had mine. I was in the, uh, um, in the pool, and I got a call from him. Mom, um, going back to my room, we, uh, he gave me roses. It was my birthday. He gave me roses and we took a picture and I left them playing games. And then what I remember is that I was called and I saw glass everywhere. And I saw my, my son covering blood on the grounds of the lobby in the hotel. Um, 
And then I don't know how I, I put me on a stretcher. They took me to an ambulance. Everything just seemed like, like it was a movie. And actually, now that I think about it, it, I've had traumatic events like this. And this was, um, another one was the middle of the night. Let's go, let's go. We're going to the airport, you know. And I was a child and that was really hurtful to leave my friends and family. Um, and um, we took him to the hospital. They put me in a room. They told me that they were able to bring him back to life. Long story short, um, it, my son decided that day to go all out experimenting with LSD and mushrooms. And who knows what he picked up because nowadays everything is laced with fentanyl and who knows what he had in his system, but he thought he could fly. And witnesses said that they saw a kid jumping out of the balcony. Um, I don't, I, I don't know. And I don't think I would, I'm ready to know. I know I can call and do uh, more investigation, but I'm not, I don't want to maybe I'm scared okay. of the truth. And, um, the world that I had in 2019, where I was in Texas living with him and had a, a little house and I was doing so well with my new home sales and my career. Everything was just perfect. His dad and I were getting along, finally. And uh, I remember Julian said, I said, Julian, your dad and I made amends and we're going to give you the best two years of, our, of your life. And I, should, and I hugged him and he goes, I know, my dad told me finally the war in Iraq ended, mommy. <laughs> Which is ironic because when he was born, we went into a uh, war in Iraq. <laughs> so I, he was just a funny kid, a loving, funny, wonderful soul. And I love my son. He, he showed me what love was. He was just 16. He had turned 16 in yes. May. Yes, he picked me up and took me out on a date two days prior to the accident. Picked me up. Never forget the song we were listening to, Janice Chaplin and The Doors. He picked me up, opened the door, took me out to dinner. He paid for it. Wow. <laughs> yeah. And then we were talking about the hotel. He was so excited about it. And of course, now I know why. Uh, um, but six days later, of being in a coma, I bury my baby. And in Texas, I didn't have anybody. Uh, it took me a few months to get my house situated, to to get rid of everything, to get rid of the house. And um, around October, actually, is when I was sitting in my bed and I thought, okay, I am going to just end this. My li life has not been good for me and it's over. And I believe that my son watches over me like a hawk. That in, right in that moment, a friend of mine calls me and says, Anna, pick up your things. You're coming to stay with me. I know what you are thinking about doing, and I'm not going to let you do that. And I was like, yes, ma'am. 
I picked up a couple of things. I went to her house. I never came to my house. Um, I sold it and I, you know, put everything in pots and I moved back to, to, in December, I moved to Florida to start with my family, the support of my older sister that has been, again, my, my surrogate mother. Um, I live next to her and um, I gave myself three, three months to grieve. And of course, what happens? The pandemic hits and grief and new normal was everywhere and every day. But I am out of finding color in this darkness. I would say that the community, the group bereavement community has been amazing. I'm here because of the support of all those bereaved mothers. One, I think one that I'm looking at right now. Um, we met that December yes. 2019 online um, when you had just moved to Florida and I was visiting my family yes. in Florida. Yes. Um, I still have the depression and the anxiety and uh, back in early this year in March is when I had another episode where I was thinking about uh, the unthinkable. And um, I was already making a plan and I talked to a lawyer and I did my living will. And I was laying in bed um, and my ex, who is a friend, said to me, I know what you're thinking, come here, just come here for the weekend. Let me feed you, you don't, let's watch TV. And then I remember you sent me this video of the waves and I showed it to him and he says, Sienna, Julian will slap you if you do that. He still wants you here. So finding color for me is honoring my son. I am going to be um, organizing and I'm spearheading this, non this charity, a fundraising uh, organization, a nonprofit organization called Julian's Place. It's going to be a foster home um, and I will, it is my goal, I have the domain and I am going to uh, launch and fund it, found, find this organization soon. I'm still giving myself some time to grieve and, and, and I have a very good job. Sales is very competitive, uh, but it's my therapy. And as soon as I get out of work, I'm back to Anna. I'm like, you know, back to my depression and, you know, depression is an illness. You talked about, um, going back to that color and the darkness, you talked about Julian's playlist and how that helps you connect to your clients. So what's that experience like when you talked about channeling Julian? Thank you for reminding me about his playlist, Music Man. So my son was a, Julian was an old soul, a self-taught guitar player and a hippie by heart. All of, all of his friends will be playing video games. He was there with a the guitar playing, um, Jimi Hendrix or uh, The Doors or, uh, you know, his playlist is amazing. I probably, most people know him. I don't, it's White Rabbit, Leonard Skinner. Um, uh, he even has uh, blues. So every time I'm in my office, I play it. My coworker says, said to me one day, my goodness, Anna, you have really good taste. And it connects me with I would say 90% of the buyers, um, they go, wow, nice list. Girl, you like good, you have a good taste of music. And I go, no, it's my son. Really? Good kid. You raised a good kid. So how old is he? I go, 
he's 16, and he and he likes this music. How does he know that whippersnapper, you know? And I'm like, I don't know. So I feel him, and he, he helps me sell houses. He helps me <laughs> sell. Um, the joy is, we, you and I have talked, the joy is temporary, because when I get home and I see his beautiful face, I wish he was here. But I know that he's so proud of me. He was my person. I think as bereaved moms, one thing that we have to feel, most of us, some people don't believe this or feel this, but love is eternal. I think we can all agree that real love is eternal and that love will never die. But we feel our son's or child's presence with us and that they are always near, just not in physical form, but their energy is always with us. And when we see the little signs, like them being channeled with music, it gives us hope. And yes, it's temporary. You still go back to the missing the physical self. But for me, being five years nearly into this journey, I feel less of those those dark moments and more color. And But yes, you can be catapulted back into that dark time with some trigger. But for the most part, I, I you know hold on to that connection. And I hope that you will have more of those connections with Julian because he is with you every day, as you know, when you're working and he's always with you, even when you're not aware of it. Thank you. And he does send me signs. And he's, um, if they are coincidence, then I am, wow, coincidence, way too many. I, I can't resist talking about the sign that we just had here in this <laughs> studio where, where Ben works. And it's a small studio, and it's a very hot day here in Massachusetts on the North Shore. And suddenly we sort of noticed this white feather in a sealed studio. And those of us who have lost someone we know that feathers are a sign. It's a white feather, right. pure, on from the other side. And so I think Julian is very much with you today. He is so. I have not broken down. I'm, I'm, I'm shaking, but I, I'm speaking I don't even know who I am right now. It's, yeah. it's very surreal. Um, and I want to end about the signs. Um, a girlfriend of mine introduced me to a friend. She said, I would like you to meet this person. He lost his wife. So I go to the bar, the restaurant to meet her and meet him. As I'm talking to him, he says, you know, I'm so sorry. I cannot, the, the, the usual cliches, I cannot even imagine. I cannot even imagine how you are here standing. As we're talking, I go, you know, yes, and his birthday's coming. And he goes, oh, yeah, May 22nd. He goes, that's my birthday, too. And he's been telling me the last few days, I don't know what's going on, but your son won't let me sleep. Talk, he keeps telling me, call my, call my mother, call my mother. So I do know that Julian, there's just his energy. He's there. It, it, brought, it brought me to you. Yes, yes. Please. And... um. I'm, I'm, I'm still dark, but I'm moving forward. And I see, having known you since December of 2019, and we, we didn't meet in person until uh, December of 2020, but in the couple of times I've been face-to-face -face with you, I've seen a big change in those few months, and the, the darkness still comes, but the, the joy and the light is brighter, and it lasts longer. So you are on your way. Looking back, we talked about 2016 and how your life changed and the lives of so many people who came to this country from other countries in recent years because we must remember that we all came at one point to this country from someplace else unless we were born an American Indian. 
And so you had to be, uh, you said, marginalized here and so many other people. What what did uh, 2020, what did that bring for you with an election of a new president and a new um, democracy? I want to touch back to about being an immigrant and what this year has been for me at least, and I'm sure for many, um, the last four years, not only did I lose my son, but I also uh, was victimized and re-victimized and re-traumatized and remembered those painful childhood memories because we had a president that demonized my people. And um, by not having him, to be honest with you, in office and not and him being silent, my voice is back. And now I am proud to say I'm Peruvian. I'm proud to say I'm an American. And um, I'm proud to have my voice. And I, if I have to say, I have to say thank you, Julian, for getting that guy out of office. <laughs> I'm able to grieve and breathe and not be in the dark anymore. And now we, we want to end with a final quote, um, your favorite line from a book, from a movie, or from a song. There's this song that a friend of mine, Bereave Mom, uh, introduced me to, and I listen to it all the time. And it's, there is a thing called love that we all forget. And it's a wasted love that we all regret. You live your life just once. So don't forget about a thing called love. Don't forget about a thing called love. That's beautiful. And that was John, my son John, introduced me to that song by the English DJs Above and Beyond. Well, JJ's. played just, it for you and you played it back for me this weekend. And I, love, I, I listen to it all the time. And one song that I, of course, Julian was a big Tom Petty uh, because he was an old soul. I won't back down. And I listened to this song from 2016 all the way to January 2020 because I won't back down by Tommy, Tom Petty. Uh, there ain't no easy way out. I won't back down. I will stand my ground and I will not back down. And every time I listen to that song, you should see me, I'm like fighting in my car <laughs> because we resisted and we're here to stay and we're humans and we all have hearts and we all hurt and we all want the best for the world. Thank you everyone. It's been a pleasure having you Anna with us today and on behalf of myself and my co-host we um, welcome you to subscribe to our podcast and we look forward to having you tune in to the next time. Thank you and everyone have a great week. Thank you.